but that generally shouldn't be the main concern. It should, it shouldn't be the main intent, la, in the sense. That, that, yeah, that, that shouldn't be. Yeah. Okay, okay. It's just that it, it became popular. It became popular because ABSD is very high. <laughs> so uh, whatever device that people can get their hands on, they will want to try it. All right, welcome back to our So Far So Good Season 2. And uh, we're back with a brand new season talking to different partners, uh, different vendors, and of course, different uh, real estate experts that are related to the real estate industry. We hope that this season... Two right here in our So Far So Good uh, series is going to add value to you, uh, especially in your decision of buying, selling, or investing in real estate. And do catch us on uh, Spotify. We're also on Apple Podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. This is also going to be uploaded on Facebook and Instagram via IGTV and uh, Facebook uh, video as well. So today we have uh, Mr. Ivan Lee, uh, a partner at Tito Isaac and Company. Uh, he's also the head of real estate practice. And uh, today we're going to chat a lot about conveyancing and things that are related to the buying and selling of real estate in Singapore, especially when the market is so hot right now in the year 2021. Uh, Ivan, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for making time and also appearing on season number two. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. How have uh, you been for year 2021? Mm, I think 2021 has been a good year. Quite a number of transactions, I believe, uh, in real estate. So um, after the agents start doing all their work, then it comes to the lawyers. So we also... Uh, quite busy. La. Okay, yeah. great. Maybe share with our audience a brief introduction. When do you start practicing law? I actually admitted to bar in 2016, so just about five years ago. Uh, graduated from SMU. Uh, admitted to bar with the current law firm, uh, Tito Isaac and Company, LLP, as an associate. Then I worked all uh, my way up. So currently a partner and head of real estate. I think you, you must be a, a very fast high flyer in the firm because <laughs> you, you are very young and then uh, now you are head of uh, convincing, I, I believe. Yes. Right. <laughs> in, in the world of convincing, you definitely have met a lot of different kinds of uh, cases, especially right. when it comes yep. to purchasing, selling. Correct. And, yeah, we're going to prick on your brain uh, today because we, I mean, we, we deal with a lot of um, investing and, mm. and purchase and, and we go through a lot of options uh, day in and day out. Right. But definitely, I think uh, your advice to our audience is coming straight from a convincing lawyer, especially with your years of experience. So maybe we're going to do a few different kinds of questions today. How about we start off with um, the part on inheritance? Because we, we have uh, recently a couple of questions coming from our a few of our clients. Like they're asking, they, they inherited a property from their parents mm. after the, uh, the parents passed away and things like that. Um, they are concerned about the, the manner of holding. Like, are they allowed to hold or do they have to sell? Mm. And also, is there any um, stamp duty that's, that's involved? Because based on our, our little bit of research, we know that this thing called the inheritance tax has been abolished many years back. So, yeah. uh, but the presence of stamp duty will still uh, apply uh, for uh, maybe their future uh, purchase, right? If uh, a couple uh, is already owning a HDB property, Mm. and maybe they have already fulfilled the MOP period. Okay. And then when their parents pass away and the parents uh, actually want to hand over to them via their will mm. the, the full um, ownership of the HDB flat, uh, right. what happens in, th in this instance? In this instance, because it's already after MOP, mm. uh, so most of the time it shouldn't be an issue for the owners to be able to take over a second property. So the regulations are quite similar. So I would assume that the second property is a private property. Okay. If it's a HDB property? If it's a HDB property, then there are actually two ways uh, to, to, to look at this thing. So general rule is that you cannot hold two HDB properties at the same time. That much is clear. Uh, unless the inherited property has been purchased by the parents uh, before a certain date. right? So if it has been purchased before a certain date, then that property can actually continue to be held for private property and uh, HDB property, mm. right? But when there are two HDB properties, generally one it's of it will have to be sold. Mm. Yeah, so that one is uh, actually quite clear. So the scenario can be quite different mm. depending on whether you own a HDB property first or you own a residential property, a private residential property first mm. and whether the inherited property is uh, private residential or it's a HDB property. Mm. Yeah, so if it's actually both uh, HDB properties, then I think the answer is generally quite straightforward. Mm. That you will have to either sell one of it, right. or if one of it is still within MOP, then uh, you will probably have to return it back to HDB. Right. 
Mm. Yeah, for 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 that that purposes. Right. Mm. Um. What if is um the the couple is already owning a private property, mm. parents um, um so called will to them a private property as well. Okay. Yeah. So uh, will there be stamp duty involved? Uh, for transmission or transfer of property by will, whether it's actually by will or intestate, in the sense that there's no will but it complies with the Intestate Succession Act. So uh, stamp duty wise, generally, I think IRAS has been quite clear on this point. There's no uh, stamp duties that's required uh, for this particular transfer. Mm. Yeah, but it would also mean uh, that this only this remission or this um, waiver of stamp duty, so called, is only uh, uh, only applicable to this current transfer pursuant to the will, mm. right? Mm. So you must I, you must comply strictly with the will. If you want to deviate from the will, for example, um, A wills it to B and C, right? But maybe the C is a brother who doesn't want the property and um, it, it's quite common. So he wants to give it to somebody else, maybe uh, another family member or uh, the, the children maybe. So um, now they want to transfer instead of giving it to B and C, to give it to B and D instead, mm. right? Then because the transfer to B is pursuant to the will, there is no stamp duty for that share of the property, mm. right? But since now the will states to give the other share to C, but C doesn't want it and wants to direct it to D instead, then that share of the transfer to D, whether or not through C, uh, when it's being effected, will be subject to stamp duty. Mm. Yeah, because, because it's like another transaction. Either it can be considered as another transaction or sometimes what we'll do is instead of having to transfer to C then to D, uh, sometimes we will do what we call deed of disclaimer lah. That means D will just disclaim the property and then it will get transferred uh, to, to somebody that he appoints. Mm. So it can be done directly from the estate to uh, party D. Um, but the situation is that as long as it is not strictly in compliance with what the will says, then that will become a, a, a transaction that requires uh, payment of stamp duties. Mm. Yeah. Great. I think great, great illustration. And um, of course, I think when uh, this inherited property is being taken over, this will definitely add to the property count that this uh, couple is holding. So it will be counted as the second property. And then, uh, although the inherited property has no stamp duty involved, but the moment they want to purchase a third property, yep. uh, definitely they will be counted as having the, the third uh, property ABSD per se. Correct. Right. Yeah. So far... Uh, what has been like the most complicated case that you have ever seen? Mm, from inherited property, the complication usually from a conveyancing perspective is where the will is not clear. Yeah, so uh, all these things can actually be prevented because um, how, how should I describe this uh, area of, uh, of, of legal work, right? Essentially, it's actually to assist um, the clients to perform the title transfer, mm. right? So the title transfer is a separate matter in terms of in, in law as compared to the contract itself or uh, to the drafting of the will or to the court order. So things like the, the will or the court order or um, uh, the, the contract, right? Essentially tells you what you need to do, right? But then uh, what the conveyancing transaction is essentially is to assist the clients to comply with the order and to ensure that what they have been asked to do is done. done legally, mm. right? So when the will is unclear, it becomes very difficult mm. to follow and to know exactly what needs to be performed, mm. right? Because wills uh, can become uh, complicated. Uh, it becomes very unclear whether the property is to be held in succession. For example, uh, certain clauses when they are not very clear uh, to say that the Property is to be gifted to the son, mm. but the spouse, or that means the mother, la, will have a right to stay in the property mm. until she passes on. And without her consent, they cannot sell the property. Right. right. So uh, we will need to actually, if there's no dispute, then of course, um, we will have to look at it. And then uh, we will, of course, speak to the administrator or uh, to the executor uh, to see uh, which is what is the actual intention of the the, the deceased la, when he actually drafted the will, mm. and we try to do the transfer mm. accordingly. Mm. Uh, so when there's no dispute, it's 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 more straightforward. Yeah, but some of these things, like the one that I just previously mentioned, essentially is because um, it's complicated because in Singapore it's very rare for that to happen. Uh, there's this thing called a life interest. Mm. 
right? A life interest essentially is that I can give a property to A for the duration of A's life. And then after A passes on, the property then goes to B. Oh. Right. So this this is something that was developed from um, old, olden days England time. Mm. Yeah, where they try to keep the property within the same family. Mm. Right. So Interesting. They, they, so, but this is very rarely done in Singapore. Okay. But, uh, is it because a lot of people don't know of its existence? Um, it's, it's also true that most people don't know of its existence, but it's uh, also because it will lower the value of the property. Because when the uh, life interest holder is holding the property, essentially the life interest holder only has uh, a property uh, or right against the property for the period of his life. Mm, provided so, it's like a freehold property. Uh, yeah, gen- generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for the period of his life. So he cannot sell it away. It's very hard to sell because he then only has the right to sell for that period of his life, which means that nobody knows when he's going to. But is he allowed to sell in the first place? Because essentially... Or there will be a caveat being lodged against that, that property? Uh, it's o- almost quite impossible to sell it. Okay. okay uh, because there is almost no marketability. Mm. Uh, because the first person that is holding the, the shorter term and not the remaining period, uh, really has like a lease over that property, like, which generally um, has no value, right? But the remaining person, if he's not willing to also sell his share, that means to sell both of it together, the, the buyer essentially is only buying for unknown period uh, mm. of time. So essentially, there's no marketability. So which is why it's not actually done in Singapore most of the time. Mm. Yeah, but then it appears more frequently when uh, it's in a, in a real situation. Yeah, so sometimes different kind of drafting using different kind of language. We are not sure whether this should constitute uh, uh, a, a legal life interest which can be registered because when this is actually registered, that actually separate title is issued for this property, mm. right? One for the life and one for the remaining one after the, the person passes away. Great. great. Uh, so, which- so, um, this this is one of the things that uh, we we face when we deal with convincing. Uh, mm. uh, also, very much similar to divorce cases where the court order is not clear. Mm. Essentially, um, this is where the complication will start to arise, la. Right. Yeah. Right. Which brings us to the next question because now, I mean, nowadays over the past few years, decoupling has been so popular, mm. right? And right. Uh, not just decoupling. I mean, uh, couples are buying a property under each name because mm. um, everybody wants to avoid having to pay uh, the additional buyer stamp duty if both couples have buying power, I mean, decoupling or buying one under each name is a is natural route, right? Mm. Um, and how has been the trend uh, like when it comes to decoupling or buying a property under each name? Most of the time, uh, what we see is that couples, when after they decouple or they actually own separate properties, most of the time, they will actually will it to the surviving spouse first, uh, everything. And only if, let's say, the surviving spouse doesn't um, or passes on, uh, in the event the surviving or the spouse actually passes on before them, then it will actually go to the children. Mm. Yeah, so, so this is something that I think is quite common. So you're saying like uh, interwilling kind of? Um, yeah, practice lah. Correct. Okay. Uh, how about in the event? Uh, if let's say there's a there's a divorce. Uh, for for divorces, uh, instituted in Singapore, um, there's this concept of matrimonial property, even though legally the properties are owned under the respective um the, the husband's name or the, the the wife's name, uh, where this property is acquired after the marriage or where it is uh, acquired before the marriage, but there were substantial improvements made to the, the, the property, uh, it can actually be considered as matrimonial asset. Mm. Right? So when it is considered as matrimonial asset, then the court will have jurisdiction to actually um, redistribute the property. So um, some of the things that we have actually seen, either the, the property either remains in their own name or that uh, sometimes they will do an exchange of the, of the properties, uh, especially when they have both their names on both properties la, mm. in those situations, then mm. they will divide it in such a way that one person will end up with one property. But if they are already separated, then usually um, it can be... Counted as count, whole. Counted as... Uh, it, it, it will be counted as the matrimonial asset pool. In total. In total. Okay. So the court will have a right to actually uh, divide uh, the property, mm. right? 
And in the recent years, there's this, a, a lot of the divorce orders are consent orders. Mm, what, what, what is so, a consent um, order? A consent order essentially means that both parties agree uh, to have the distribution of asset and this agreement is filed as a court order. Mm. Right? So essentially, um, it makes the divorce more straightforward right? because they've already agreed to it and they, they, they don't have to contest it in front of the court. And the court generally, if there's no major issues with it, they will generally agree and they will seal on it. Mm. So it, be, it has the force of a court order, but essentially the uh, agreement behind the distribution has already been consented by both parties. Mm. Right? So consent order makes it uh, easier to deal with the conveyance. Mm. So if anything is uh, uh, requires some clarification, then we'll just go back to the parties to ask them to clarify uh, what was their actual agreement at mm. the point of time. So, so it's, this is to assist with their distribution uh, obligations la, to make sure that the conveyance is done uh, correctly. Mm. Yeah. Great, great. Um, we, have done, we have done a topic on, on buying properties under trust mm. uh, in season one with um, another guest that appeared on the show. Um, just to bring back the, the, the purchasing under trust uh, kind of concept, um, do you see it rising over the past year? Uh, because definitely over the past few years, it has been a very popular uh, practice mm. buying. I mean, but yep. this is of course pertaining to only families that can fully pay a property because when you buy trust, um, you can't uh, take a mortgage on it. Yep. Yeah. So uh, maybe just to bring back that topic, has there been any changes to the trust law buying properties uh, under children that's below 21 years old over this past uh, one to two years? Uh, over the past one to two years, I don't think trust law has actually developed uh, mm. a lot or changed a lot in respect to purchasing real estate mm. uh, on trust for minors. Uh, the law has actually stayed the same, but I think there is an increase in the demand uh, to have properties actually um, purchased or structured uh, under a trust uh, situation. So... Uh, Trust device is something that is uh, requires consideration, proper consideration, because there are many legal obligations that is being uh, tagged to this trust device, mm. right? So, um, briefly, essentially, a trust uh, is uh, set up, right, when there is a trust deed, and the terms of the trust deed essentially um, creates this this legal concept called a trust, lah. So, uh, how should we think of it, of the trust essentially, is that we should think of a trust as a person who is uh, holding, uh, there are two parties who are holding different sets of uh, legal interests over that asset, right? So um, a little bit technical, but the, the, the concept essentially is that there are these two different concepts uh, in law. One is called the legal title, right? And one is called a beneficial uh, title. Right. So the legal title is usually held by the person called the trustee mm. and the beneficial ownership uh, is held by uh, the beneficiary. Most of the time in Singapore context will be the kid uh, that's below 21. Mm. Yeah. So there's a difference in this obligation and between the um, uh, beneficial owner, which is the children, and the parent who is the trustee, um, there's a set of legal obligation and duties that the trustee need to follow in discharging uh, the management of the property under the trust mm. uh, concept or the trust creation. Mm. So I think many people use it as uh, a device to avoid uh, additional bias and duty. But there are also uh, implications because these implications will not surface until... Uh, many, many years down the road. Mm, maybe what are some of the implications? That some some of these uh, implications essentially is that the first one is that the property count is counted as the beneficiary's property count for uh, ABSD purposes, right? So in the future, when this kid actually turns uh, 21 or uh, is of, uh, of age already, they want to buy a property, and if they do not know that they have a property under trust in their name, they are going to be hit with uh, ABSD for their so-called first property purchase, mm. right? So it is um, it, it is important that if the property has not been sold by the time the beneficiary decides to buy another uh, residential property in Singapore, uh, then the beneficiary 
needs to know that he has this property, even though the title deed doesn't show his name, mm. this property is uh, beneficially his, right? Mm. Because the property count for tax purposes actually shifts. Mm. So when he buys his uh, own property under his own name, he will actually be hit with additional buyer stamp duty. Mm. So this consideration is something that uh, needs to be kept in mind mm. because it will only come into play many, many, many years down the road. Years. Yeah, oh, when, mm. when the kid actually turns 21 and he can actually buy his own property. Mm. So one of the other situations that I can also think of is uh, if the kid wants to buy a BTO, mm. he has a private property, he's supposed to dispose it 30 months before he can apply for a BTO. Mm. And he realizes at the point of application <laughs> that he cannot make the application <laughs> because he has a private property. Mm. So um, these are things that you need to keep in mind as long as uh, a person who wants to purchase a trust property uh, understands all these risks that they are creating and undertaking mm. uh, and very much involuntarily for the beneficiary because mm. the beneficiary has no control, mm. um, then it's definitely fine. Mm. But they must understand that these things can happen and it may end up being a very big dispute down the road. Right. Yeah. How many years uh, does the trustee have to hold uh, the property before they can sell it? Uh, for seller stamp duty purposes, currently is three years, lah, mm. right? Uh, but this trust um concept, uh, it's 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 it's, it's a legal concept, so whether there are any restrictions on the trustee's uh, ability or power to sell the property, uh, can also be found in the trustee, mm. right? So if this is a very detailed trustee that has special restrictions saying that uh, this is a property trust, but the trustee is not entitled to sell the property, right? Then the trustee will not have power to sell the property, mm. right? So in terms of seller stamp duty, we know that for now it's three years, yeah. but when everything is under trust, a lot of it, uh, how to manage the property and what the trustee can do with the property, uh, actually we always need to look back at the trustee itself. Mm. Who, who decides what's in the trustee? Um, usually the trust deed will be drafted by a lawyer mm. and it depends on uh, what perspectives and what do you want inside the trust deed. So most people, when they enter into a trust uh, device, their main concern is about additional buyer stand duty, which by right, it shouldn't be. Mm. Okay, because the trust concept... That's not the main purpose. Yeah, the main purpose of a trust concept in, in, in general law essentially... It's a gift for the, uh, the minor. It's actually to allow um, the management uh, of the property to be done by the trustee for the benefit of the beneficiary. Until 21. Uh, yes, until 21. So trust can also be set up even if the beneficiary is not uh, below 21. Mm. Now, it can be done, right? A trust concept- It can be done for an adult. It can be done for an adult. It can be done for charitable purposes, oh. right? Um, if, for example, if you want to create a trust so that uh, maybe your uh, maybe uh, your disabled child who is above twenty one, mm. uh, you are afraid that he is not able to manage the finances um, properly by himself, mm. right? You can set up a trust. The trustee essentially is the person who is holding the uh, legal ownership, mm. but must manage the property uh, for the benefit of the beneficiary. So he cannot do anything that uh, would generally be detrimental to the beneficiary. Mm. So this is the kind of a legal relationship uh, mm. that, that we have in a trust. So the trust device is very useful uh, in many, many areas, but for real estate, right? Most people think of it as a way to avoid ABSD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but that generally shouldn't be the main I concern. It, should, it uh, shouldn't be the main intent uh, in the that, sense. That, that, yeah, that, that shouldn't be. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay. It's just that it, it became popular. It became popular because ABSD is very high. <laughs> so uh, whatever device that people can get their hands on, they will want to try it. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for sharing on the, on the trust portion. Let's, let's move on a little bit mm. to the purchasing uh, and selling uh, kind of uh, minute details. Mm. Right? So, uh, you know, recently, the, the past, uh, especially the past 24 months, there has been um, a very common practice because the market is moving very fast. Mm. Right? So market is moving fast. Um, with the restrictions of COVID, the amount of viewing uh, into the property physically right. is also being affected. Yeah. Like, uh, especially for properties that are very popular. Uh, we talk about a lot uh, during our Nuggets on the Go, the other podcast that we talk about the market conditions right now, uh, is that landed properties are extremely hot. Mm. Um, Large-size apartments, very popular right now. 
I think there's been like a change and shift in um, sort of like our preferences for home, especially after the circuit breaker and, and, and all that. We People are all looking for bigger properties and, and mm. more space. Yeah, which is also why like penthouses, ground floors are getting very popular as well. So people want to have a combination of outdoor, indoor, or maybe just an additional bedroom to use it as a home office, right? Or mm. for, for their kids. Right. So uh, because of this, when, when it is in the uptrend market, it's also very common um, that a lot of uh, uh, home sellers right now that wants to purchase their next property um, is, a, is a natural instinct. Let's say, for example, if I'm looking for a home, I would want to sort of see what is out there in the market first. So I want to mm. hunt for a property. And uh, by the time, maybe I have viewed like 20 properties, I finally found the one I like. Now I realize that, hey, I haven't sell my place yet. Mm. And if I were to put in an option, I'll be taxed with the ABSD. I cannot get the full 75% loan, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then if I were to come back and then focus on selling, by the time that property might be gone. So this is always a, the dilemma in the uptrend market. Right. So which gave rise to, of course, uh, the practice of uh, putting in a higher option fee. Mm plus uh, negotiating with uh, the next uh, home uh, current seller for a longer option period, right? right. So, so uh, of course, this, this, this 24 months, past 24 months, this has been pretty common. I mm. mean, a lot of negotiations, options are drafted with a longer option period. So maybe you can, can share with us like what are some of the things you see on the ground uh, from your perspective as a convincing lawyer? Most people or most buyers uh, in Singapore are know for a fact that when they actually grant an option with a longer option period, I think they have already been advised many times that uh, they are undertaking the risk. Uh, and as they, a seller. Yeah, as a seller mm. that they are not able to resell this property uh, to anybody else until um, the option that they have granted has expired. So on the ground, we actually don't see that many cases uh, mm. where the sellers want to back out. I think most of them know we'll that honor the contract. Uh, yeah, they have to honor the contract and that if they want to back out, uh, they will either have to get into a very complicated dispute with the buyer. If not, then they may have to even fork out more money to convince the buyer to give up the option, which then um, may, may, not be, um, may not be good for them. Yeah, so on the ground, we actually don't see that many cases. Uh, but for the uh, issue with the grant of a longer option period, uh, I think um, it's something that it's uh, very common and I think it has been used quite well. Uh, just that um, the, the, the sellers are taking, uh, are taking this business risk on themselves, like, which is usually why when there's a, a longer option, option, option period, higher. the option fee will also mm, be higher. Mm. So this is essentially to compensate them. Right. Uh, for Both the, parties part, partake in the risk in a sense. Like. Yeah, correct. So uh, on the ground, we don't really see that, mm. that, that many cases. Uh, mm. Most of the time, uh, even if we do hear uh, where our clients are uh, sellers who want to toy with the idea of trying to back out. Uh, after they hear the repercussions, they, they, they usually will just wait it out. Lah. Sure, sure. Yeah. What if the seller backs out? Um, like maybe it's a three months option period and then after mm. one month, the seller has remorse. Seller decides to back out. Uh, what, what are the legal implications that, or what, what recourse does the buyer have uh, to take against the seller? For the buyer side, of course, the, the, the first starting point we will always uh, tell the clients essentially is that uh, you will have to firstly negotiate for the cancellation of the option, right? And then we will see whether the terms of the cancellation uh, is uh, is something that you would be able to undertake. Lah. I mean, there are also buyers who are nice enough to say that, okay, it, it's it's fine, we can cancel and then we can just do a refund of the, the option fee uh, and then both parties go their own way, mm. right? Uh, so so it's the, the first step is always to, to enter into negotiations. Mm. Uh, but if the buyer is not willing because the buyer really loves the house and needs and wants to exercise, yes. but he's waiting to sell his existing property first, then uh, essentially this will be considered as a repudiation of the, of, the, of the contract by the seller, right? So when it's repudiated, essentially meaning that um, the seller is telling the buyer upfront that I don't intend to sell you this property anymore and uh, I, I, I want to back out. So uh, the worst case scenario essentially is that because it's still within the option period, the buyer can actually go to court to ask for a 
specific performance. So specific performance essentially is uh, a remedy uh, where the court would order that the transaction is to continue to proceed. And that will also mean that the seller will be forced uh, to uh, sell and to transfer the property mm. uh, to the buyers. Mm. So that will actually mean that makes no difference lah. Because he will still lose his house, mm. right? And then, um, of course, the 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 sale proceeds will come in. He mm. still gets his sale proceeds. Mm. So, um, this this is this is the worst. Uh, this is the worst case, uh, or the worst case scenario that can actually happen. Mm. If not, then um, the buyers either will ask for uh, additional compensation in order to settle uh, amicably to cancel the option, right. or that they can actually ask for damages. Mm. Right, so if any loss uh, has been incurred uh, on the buyer side, then that can also be uh, actually claimed uh, against the seller. Mm. Right. How long is the process to apply for specific performance? Uh, specific performance nowadays, I think the application to court uh, is not very common. Oh, yeah, it's not. Uh, is is it's not very common because the the whole process is long. Mm. It's essentially uh. A, a, a litigation case. Right? Mm. So, so let's say the seller backs out, <clears throat> buyer really wants a house and they want this thing to go through. How long does this whole thing take like to to go to court and things like that? Does it take a year or? It could take up to a year mm. uh, depending on uh, how much evidence you need to put forth to convince the court to grant this, uh, to, to grant this remedy and specific mm. performance. Mm. Uh, of course, if you have a lawyer that uh, is expediting the case, uh, it could of course be done in a couple of months. Right. Right. Uh, but the 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 I think one of the reasons probably why, uh, there there aren't so many cases or so most people honor the contract. Um, well, most people honor the contract, but also um, it's quite expensive to go to court. Right. That's but, the first but thing. What if what if at the end the the buyer wins the case? Uh, I mean, because they have paid the option fee, the option has been granted. Is, is a willing buyer, willing seller thing at the initial point, but seller decides to back out two months later. Mm. And let's say after a six months court proceeding and things and buyer wins, can a buyer claim damages in terms of like the delay in the completion and then the legal fees and things like that? Like usually how is it done? For the court application itself, usually if the buyer actually wins, uh, then it is quite likely that the court will probably order that uh, the costs will be uh, paid to the buyer, mm. right? So uh, damages for the uh, delay in completion, all these things will have to be asked for. Mm. Uh, and, and, and one of the reasons is because specific performance is not uh, what we usually call as uh, granted as of right. Lah. Essentially means that if you apply to court and then you... you uh, you know, fulfill certain conditions, then definitely you will get it. It's not something that is so straightforward uh, mm. that the court will order. The court will actually have to look at various circumstances and uh, decide whether they think it's fair to actually grant um, this, uh, this, this remedy. Because this remedy is, uh, as the court mentions, usually they'll consider it as quite onerous. Mm. Right? Uh, so if, for example, if uh, damages or payment of uh, compensation uh, monies by the seller to the buyer is sufficient uh, to compensate the buyer uh, mm. for whatever losses that he has incurred, right? Because of the withdrawal of the option by the sellers, then in 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 this case, uh, you may not be able to get specific performance. So you may be able to get uh, money, damages, damages, money, but you may not get the house, lah. Oh, okay. Yeah, correct. So 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 the 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 issue with this this particular remedy is that. You can spend all the court fees to go to court, but you may not get what you want at the end of the day. Mm. You might end up having just money mm. and not the house. Mm. So, so sometimes after people assessing the risk, they'll say that I, I don't want to waste my time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Understand. How about let's flip over to the mm. other side. Let's say example, the buyer placing the option fee. And then um, two days later, seller wants to bang in and then uh, check bounce. Mm. Right. Then option has been granted. Let's say it's a it's, it's, it's option granted, check exchange on the same day. Two days later, check bounce, uh, buyer MIA. Right. And mm. uh, what's going to happen here? What, what, what kind of um, recourse can the seller take? Uh, essentially, can claim for the option fee. Right. Most likely can claim for the option fee because mm. at this particular point in time, uh, it's a little bit 
different uh, from the first scenario, mm. right? Because in this particular case, uh, whatever that the seller has on hand, essentially, he's only entitled to forfeit the option monies Correct. if the buyer doesn't exercise, right? So in this case where the buyer actually uh, hands over the, the, the option fee by bound so it didn't clear, the we do not know whether the buyer will actually exercise. Mm. So... Uh, if there's anything to be uh, to be claimed, essentially, the losses that will be incurred by the seller would be the fact that he did not receive the money that he was entitled to forfeit, lah, which is usually the the option fee. Mm. So that would generally be the amount that uh, he would. Sure. Be able how how, to how claim. is it, how is the seller going to claim this amount? I mean, will let the law firm do the job to locate the buyer, or I don't think the law firm will be able to locate the buyer if the buyer hasn't even contacted their law firm. Mm, like, right. like, like through the, the mm. IC number, the full name that's listed on the OTP, like uh, what is the next step of action? So in this case, if you really want to claim for it, um, you will have to initiate court proceedings, mm. which um, may or may not be cost effective to recover the How much will it cost? Like? I think essentially... Uh, when you when you actually apply to court, uh, definitely legal fees will be at least a couple of thousand mm. already. So depending on how big the option fee is, lah, mm. whether you want to go through the trouble of going through the whole court proceedings. Mm. So um, and for court proceedings to actually start, you will have to uh, notify the buyer that you have initiated court proceedings on mm. him. So if he has really physically gone MIA and even the the agents, the lawyers, nobody can find him then uh, there will be some difficulty in initiating the court proceedings. That's the first hurdle. Okay. The second hurdle essentially, of course, uh, will be that um, there will be, there's something called substituted service la, in, in, in all these court proceedings things. Uh, means that even if you cannot find the person, you'll have other means of trying to so-called serve the notice. Okay. Right? Even if you cannot personally find them. Okay. Uh, but all this will mean additional costs. So sure. it's a cost-benefit analysis. You can serve at the workplace and things like that. Yeah, sometimes I think uh, recently service on WhatsApp, I believe uh, Facebook has also been acknowledged by the courts, yeah, okay. but you will need the court approval to allow you to do it uh, digitally. With, uh, digitally la. Wow, okay. Yeah. What if um, uh, the, the buyer didn't MIA mm. and the buyer says that you know they, they just don't want to pay? They, they stop the check, they don't want to pay, uh, even though it's, it's stated, I mean, by mm. um, the law conditions 2012 that... Uh, OTP granted, check issued. This is a this is a legitimate transaction, mm. and you have to fulfill uh, the covenant of, of the check and mm. uh, making good of the check. So, what if the buyer just you know after two days, three days, just say, "Oh no, I, I just stop it. I don't want. I don't want to proceed. I don't want to uh, continue." And seller, they will continue to serve court proceeding if they want to, like if they yeah, weigh the cost. Correct. If okay. they want to, should they serve it after the option expire, or should they serve it during the option? What is the obligation? Because just for example, mm. if it's a 14-day option period, um, the buyer can come back on the 14 day and say, hey, you know, why, why do you serve me a court proceeding? I, I want to exercise. I want to exercise. Okay, I'll make it a 1%, then I'll continue to exercise. Right? So, mm. uh, but what if it's, it's like a three-month option mm. and um, can a buyer come back later, you know, after the court proceeding has been served during the option period and say that, you know, I, I still have the option with me. It's just that I never make good the one the, the one percent, or maybe the I didn't make good the two percent. Mm. Now I want to make good all five percent together to exercise the option. Like, like, what is? I mean, this is a bit sensitive. In in this case, what 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 should be done by the seller? Uh, for this kind of scenario, I think it's not uh, it's it's not extremely clear. Uh, what is the what is the best way forward? Uh, but I think most of the time, what you would want to do is, uh, if you really want to initiate court proceedings, uh, then I think you sh you should be able to initiate them as early as possible, mm. right? Uh, because I think it would be clear to say that, um, I think most options also state that it is in consideration of the monies. So if the monies has not cleared, right, then uh, the seller could very well uh, say that the option was not properly granted. And even if you wanted to exercise, you couldn't. So uh, because 
the 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 money uh hasn't come into my hand, mm. the option is not considered as properly granted for you to exercise, mm. right? Even though we know that most of the time it's exchange uh it's exchange for the check, right? So um in this case there are many ways it can actually go, uh but if you really want to initiate the court proceedings then it should be as early as possible because mm. then you should rely it's not on, to wait. Uh, is to rely on the fact that, uh, and to make it very clear that um, the option is only granted properly, and the offer will only be uh, you know uh, held out for uh, for the three months, right? For the buyer to exercise if the option money option money uh, has been properly paid. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Great. Let's move on to to this part of um, a buyer successfully um, purchase a, a landed property. I mean. Mm. The past one year, landed property has also been very hot. Mm. So, um, for example, let's say let's say if um, somebody were to purchase a landed property and they want to go through a process of uh, ENA or reconstruction, mm. and then um, halfway into the process, uh, something happened during the reconstruction phase or rebuild process or maybe ENA phase, and then um, there has been some damages to the neighbor's property. Mm. Yeah, especially if it's like an inter-terrorist you know, the, the side walls are all shed right. with the left and right neighbor. So, uh, and then can the, and, and let's say the, the neighbor decides to, to claim damages and, and, and sue mm. the owner. Uh, what is the, what is the responsibility route over here? Like who is responsible? Because from the owner's point of view, sorry, from the, the, the buyer's point of view, who is the new owner now of this property, mm. they have uh, engaged a builder or contractor to renovate A and A rebuild, right? Mm. Um, so when the neighbor wants to sue, uh, is to sue the contractor or to sue the owner? Like, like what is what is that that relationship over here? I think most of the time, the the neighbor mm. will sue everybody, lah. Okay, right? Because your because usually when you when you start a suit, you will sue. Uh, you'll probably sue both the contractor. As well as the uh, the the owner, mm. right? So that they see who is found liable and then who will pay la, right? Because generally only these two parties are involved, right? So, um, the relationship here is not one of contract because there's no contract between um the uh, the contractor and there's no contract between the 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 owner as well as the neighbor. So um, this is essentially what we would consider, uh as a, most likely a negligent suit. So this is a tort suit. Mm. So essentially, um, negligent is something that uh, is a duty from the owner to the neighbor and a duty from the contractor to the neighbor. Right? So depending on uh, what is their uh, relationship and depending on whether the uh, owner and whether the contractor that's being uh, employed by the owner uh, has actually uh, fulfilled their duty of care. So this duty of care is a legal standard essentially that the court uh, will have a look at all the evidence and they will see whether um, the parties have been negligent. So most likely it's going to be discount cases. If the parties have not been negligent and they have actually complied with whatever that uh, the law requires them to do in terms of uh, for the owner. Uh, most of this will, of course, um, be, be contractor or subcontractor. They are not direct employees of the owner, right? So um, whether the owner has actually uh, con uh, contracted for a contractor who has the licenses and the experience to do the kind of work that he has employed the contractor to do. And when the contractor actually carries out the uh, ANA or the construction on the property, uh, whether they have complied uh, with uh, the 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 reasonable standard in actually uh, doing their 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 construction work mm. for the particular owner, mm. so if they have actually met with this uh, legal standard, right, essentially what we call the the duty of care, um, then there will be no uh, legal obligation for the owner as mm. well as the contractor to have to compensate. Mm. Uh, the neighbor mm. for damages to their property. Mm. Yeah, generally that that wouldn't be. But of course, if the contractor had been negligent, mm. uh, he didn't correctly, um, you know, protect the wall before he did the hacking, mm. right? Um, then 
the court found that yeah, this is not the standard that has been met mm. legally, then yes, probably they, they might have to pay uh, the neighbor for the for the damages mm. that has been incurred on their property. Mm. Yeah. In the in the relation of the owner um with the builder, what kind of duty or care relationship does the owner and the, the builder need to have? Does the builder have to compensate themselves or the owner have to compensate? Because it was the owner that employed the builder. Mm. Right. So right. so what is that kind of relationship there? Okay, so the uh relationship as I mentioned earlier on the uh the neighbor will probably sue both Everybody. the owner mm. and the contractor, yeah. right? So the damage was suffered on the neighbor's side. Mm. So the relationship that the court will be looking at is between the owner and the neighbor as well as the contractor and the neighbor. Mm. So um, most of the time, uh, I don't think the owner will be found negligent. Uh. Mm. Okay, because I think um, contractors all have their license and then if you give them this, uh, this piece of work to do, if they don't have the experience or the license to to to, to do it, uh, they shouldn't have accepted it. Mm. If they accept it, generally that will also mean that they have the uh, expertise to be able to do it mm. properly. So uh, most likely, I don't think the owners will be uh, will be involved. So maybe it will be the contractor who have would have to pay directly mm. uh, to compensate the uh, uh, the neighbor. Right. Right. So if the contractor has to compensate the neighbor directly, then uh, there will be no loss to the owner. Mm. So the contractor doesn't have to pay anything to the owner because there's no loss to the owner. Right. right. Uh, maybe save for legal costs, la, I mm. suppose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's say if for some odd reason, um, the owner is the one that is found to have to compensate the neighbor. Right. It's possible that the relationship between the owner and the contractor uh, is not really one of uh, negligence. Most likely you will go for uh, the contract yeah, right. because they have a contract. Uh, for the for the construction works to be done, so in the contract, uh, we will have to look into the contract and see if there are such things that happen. Uh, what the uh, what is the contractor's obligation mm. to indemnify or to reimburse the owner for the losses that has been incurred? Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah, I think we have, we have talked about. Um, five broad topics today. So I think the very first thing we'll talk about today was um, about inheritance. <laughs> and then that move on to um, some common questions when it comes to divorce. Um, and then we talk about trust and then the, on the, the option money as well as uh, some recourse between seller and buyer. And then of course, lastly, will be uh, some renovation mm-hmm. kind of uh, guidelines when to, to avoid any form of disputes and things like that. I think it has been very insightful with uh, Ivan with us from uh, Tito Isaac and, and company. And uh, maybe um, Ivan, just to end off, uh, is there any uh, advice you want to give to our audience when it comes to maybe just just on on one point that you want our audience to take away when it comes to buying a property right now in the current market? Um, the main point essentially when you are transacting real estate is a uh, is the issue of getting the option uh, correct. Mm. So the option essentially will be the contract governing the relationship between the buyer and the seller and how the um, ownership is to be transferred uh, to the buyer at the end of the day. So uh, in this current market, I think there are a lot of uh, situations where uh, you know people want to take early possession, they want to change uh, completion date because they always have another pending transaction uh, that they will need to time. Mm. All these things needs to be uh, considered carefully before they even enter into the particular option. Right, so um, the reason why I say this is because regarding uh, completion timings, regarding early possession, regarding early completion, uh, or, or all these um, things should be negotiated before the option is granted. Because once the option is granted on the terms, as it should have been uh, granted as per the agreement between the parties, the contract for the sale and purchase of the property can only form if there is no variation to the option. Right, because uh, in law the acceptance acceptance to the uh, offer must be unconditional. So you cannot say that okay, I agree to buy your property, but then I want to add A B C D E. Right, so that doesn't form a proper uh, acceptance, and that that doesn't form a proper contract. So all these things I think should needs to be negotiated, and if they are not found in the option, uh, they should be drafted into the option. Mm. Right. Uh, I know in market practice because um, the options a lot of times are granted very quickly. Mm. So there isn't sufficient time for a, 
professional to look through the terms and to incorporate uh, what other considerations that require. And then they start asking for additional documents like, oh, can we have a tenancy later on? Can we do the letter of indemnity later on? But all these things are not part of the contract, mm. right? So if you actually negotiate for it, then you should try to get it into the option because that is where your foundation of uh, your legal obligation is. Mm. So if it's inside there, which means that you can be ensured that it will be performed in the manner that you have agreed. Mm. But if you discuss it verbally and you don't put it inside, and most options also have an entire agreement clause, yep. meaning that all the terms and conditions of this transaction is found inside. right? So this, I think, should be the main takeaway, uh, given that this market is a little bit different from the past years and mm. there are a lot of back-to-back -back transactions. Yep. Uh, so all these considerations, it should be discussed and once it's discussed, should be put inside the option. Mm. So we do not actually uh, end up in the dispute down the road. Right. right. And then we will have to ask, uh, but you said this, then we will say, but it's not here. Mm. So it's not enforceable. Now right. we will have to end up doing a request. Mm. And when we do a request, you may not get what you want at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah. So it's best to have everything in the contract so that uh, you know that you have something to fall back on and we, everybody knows what their obligations are. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks, thanks for the advice. Yeah, I think that's very important because everybody wants a, a happy uh, purchase and sales experience and, and nobody wants to get into unnecessary litigation and, and to make this an unpleasant experience. Yeah. So buying a home is, is a happy event. Selling a property should also be a happy event yep. because when you sell, you, you are definitely going to your next home if it's your... Uh, primary resident. So, thank you, Ivan, for uh, taking time to thank come you, thank to you our for studio. Me. Yeah, for so far so good season number two. And uh, if you want to locate uh, Ivan, uh, we'll put in uh, his uh, details, contact details of him and his firm right down in the description link down below. And of course, if you want to reach him, you can reach him via email or via his contact number. And I think he'll be very happy to assist you together with his. Uh, associate. So, uh, thank you once again. And of course, thank, thank you for you. Uh, watching So Far So Good with Property Lim Brothers. We hope to see you on the next episode. Meantime, take care.